you scream. Rewind. This week, migrating from the truth. This week, we're going to repeat what I think is our favorite episode, which is called "Migrating from the Truth." But we're also doing it because there's been a god awful row over what's called the Migration Pact. Right. This comes in the context not only of all these European countries having pulled out of this, the U.S. having never signed up, Brazil have just announced that they're coming out as well, but also this pact has become a kind of symbol of the fight between the nationalist right and the more centre ground parties. It has also been wildly misrepresented in terms of what it's actually there for. The hard right basically have got a hold of it. And in the last couple of months, they've turned it into this rallying cry against the rights of migrants, using this as a breakbat. Absolutely, and it's really important for us to talk about migration and the way it can be misrepresented. What we have seen from the far right and even from the center right in Europe, in a number of countries, is a complete misrepresentation of this pact. There is no. New right to migrate granted by this pact. There is no policy to flood Europe with migrants. The UN is not redrawing national borders, but that's how the nationalists and the populists have crafted their messaging around this. And my point, I guess, would be that in a post-truth media environment where tabloids feed and feed and feed upon these kinds of misrepresentations, and people tend to hear what they want to hear. Right-wing populists can lie and dissemble about migration with great success. Absolutely, and they get a lot of help. The class A example of exactly the kind of disinformation that you're talking about was a headline I was reading this morning on Sputnik, which is a is a Russian propaganda outfit. This essentially makes migration a human right, and that's been playing into this incredibly divisive debate. You can tell that it's become a kind of meme of the right. Just the other day, we had the head of the Vlamsbelang, which is kind of the the hardest and most unpleasant end of the far right in Belgium, doing a press conference in in the Belgian Parliament with Marine Le Pen of the National Rally in 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 France, the far right party there, and Steve Bannon, who obviously has been trying to set up this movement, as he calls it, to unify the far right in Europe. The sole subject of their discussion was the UN Pact. The lesson from the Belgian. Way that this has played out, where the new Flemish alliance has walked out of the government, is that centre-right parties are cravenly chasing far-right and extreme far-right voters, rather than sticking by their roots in a kind of humane brand of Christian democracy. I mean, after all, this migration pact is all about balancing the rights of sovereign nations with humane treatment of people who are fleeing war or economic deprivation. I don't really see that goal at odds with the roots of many of Europe's parties that are abandoning things like the migration pact. Anyway, yeah, here's Europe's list of shame: Hungary, under its authoritarian leader Viktor Orbán, pulled out of signing of the pact even while it was being negotiated. Sebastian Kurz, the Austrian chancellor, whose government is in coalition with a party with ultra far right roots. Repudiated this pact a couple of months ago. Then Bulgaria, the Czechs, the Polish, the Slovaks, and the Swiss also said no. And the Dutch and the Belgians obviously have stuck with the pact, but under significant pressure from from the far right within those countries, which hasn't yet managed to turn them. But it goes to show again how a, how these governments can be dragged right, and how effectively this has been used as a propaganda tool by the far right.
right? They have created a debate quite literally out of nothing. Right. I mean, they can weaponize anything with the word migration in it. Right. And still, we're at the point where there is not a credible response from the mainstream or the left, right? There, there, is, there is no one managing to reframe this as an issue on which we should be absolutely maximally in favour of this pact. Migration only gets worse with the impacts of climate change. You know, vast parts of the world are about to be driven into horrendous droughts, horrendous floods, extreme weather. The economic deprivation will increase markedly. We need to be cooperating to be able to manage where people are going to be able to safely be. And yet, somehow, that frame has completely fallen away. Once again, we're playing in the, in, to the agenda of the far right, having the debate on their terms. And the mainstream has just failed to get their arms around this issue and respond in a robust and solid way. And it's falling apart. So let's go into this episode, Migrating from the Truth, where we deal with some of these issues around migration in a post-truth world. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream. The podcast on Europe and its political extremes. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. I'm Tom. I've been a lobbyist and spin doctor on the inside track of European competition and tech policy, and I've spent the last decade fighting climate change. In this episode, we dissect the antics of a Canadian far-right activist. She boasts to her half a million YouTube subscribers how she helps save Europe from migrants. We also take another kind of dive into the post-truth world with a strange tale of a human rights campaigner who was passed off by far-right internet trolls as Christine Blasey Ford. But first, Tom and I discuss the long overdue slapdown of Italian far-right leader Matteo Salvini. Hey, Tom. What do you think about fighting incivility with incivility, you know, uh, being rude in response to provocations by the far right? I think quite a lot about it. Obviously, in some circumstances, it's difficult not to just come back with bigger swearing. The online environment has a significant part to play here. That's right. I mean, so much of our politics, right, is online. Every, practically everything. I mean, you look at just the funding, right? You go and look at election campaigns. 90% of the communication spending spent by the major political parties in the UK at the last election was spent online. 90%. Most campaigns are running at least those kinds of numbers. That's to buy online advertising? This is to buy online advertising. Very few of the kind of traditions and norms of the offline media space which obviously has developed over hundreds and hundreds of years and, and has a kind of set of traditions and, and governance, if you will. The online space doesn't have that. And so it plays to these more and more extreme positions because they're what gets attention amongst all of that noise and all of that melee. And so you can draw an audience by being more extreme, by being more uncivil, essentially. I wanted to talk about this because I've been watching that video of that recent bust-up between Matteo Salvini, the far-right leader in Italy, and Luxembourg's foreign minister, Jean Asselborn. 
I'll play you just one of the juicy bits. I warn you, it's in French, and there's some sophisticated vocab coming. You ready? So that's Jean Asselborn, who's actually one of the longest-serving foreign ministers in the EU, if not the longest-serving foreign minister, losing his um, shit at a meeting with Salvini. I presume you got the gist of that. Yeah, no, totally. And indeed, it's, you know, it's been a much debated phrase and it's not, oh shit. It's much more of a kind of fuck you. It is. I mean, to my mind, it feels a lot like shut the fuck up. Right. Very harsh language in the rarefied atmosphere of an essentially a, a political meeting. You know, the story for those that need a refresher is that Salvini, who's not only the leader of the far right party in Italy, the League, but also now in government in Rome as the interior minister. He's at a meeting with other ministers in Vienna, and as usual, they're deadlocked on how to be humane to migrants on the one hand, and on the other hand, keep Europe's coastline more secure. You know, hard circle to square, no easy answers. Salvini is the newcomer in the EU club here. He attacks the idea defended by most economists, and most of those at the sane end of the political spectrum, that Europe needs migrants to replenish an aging workforce and, of course, to pay for our pensions. But then it gets really hardcore. Salvini says Italians don't want to import new slaves. Yeah, faceplant. Shall we make the sound of a faceplant? Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. How about... Oh, yeah, that's like pretty that. good. I'll just gonna try another one. Tom took off his glasses for that. I'm kind of glad he did. Then Salvini contrasts Luxembourgers with virile Italians who apparently prefer to breed children to replenish the workforce. And although he didn't say it, he, of course, means white children. So that's when Asselborn interrupts and calls out Salvini's bullshit. And very enjoyable it is. Salvini's staff is apparently filming the event despite a filming ban at these kinds of meetings. And then the staff, or Salvini, proudly stick the video material up on Salvini's social media. I think this kind of says a lot. You know, you can't but conclude that there must have been some premeditation to Salvini's provocation, since his own staff seems to have been doing the recording. Salvini is a kind of shock jock. He breaks the rules at this meeting by first filming behind closed doors against the rules, then he calls migrants slaves, and then he expects civility in return. Just listen to this, where Salvini asks Asselborn to start watching his language. They know how this stuff plays. Again, classical authoritarianism. Never, ever, ever try and play to a wider audience. Always play to the base. You know, why did Trump play to the caravan throughout the entire midterms campaign. Why do they maintain this absolute focus on migration? It's common amongst all of these. I mean, you know, just to be clear, Orban turned up at a meeting in China and started going on about how his country was under attack from mass migration, right? There are practically no migrants in Hungary at all, right? And he's doing this in China. Why? Because it plays to the base. And if they can convince the base that they're under attack, they'll keep voting for the tough guys who are going to look after them. Right? So let me, let me go back to the basic question. Asselborn blurts out what he blurts out. 
he counters incivility with a version of his own incivility. He gets pretty good press for this around Europe. Asselborn has confronted Salvini. This people kind of, printed T-shirts. Yeah, people printed T-shirts with Merde alors on them, celebrating what Asselborn had done to stand up to Salvini. For me, personally, respect. You know, respect for Asselborn, for his behavior. More people should have stood up in that room and said something. These dramatic tactics at least focus attention on the odious behavior of, you know, people like Salvini. Is this the way to go, though? Right. So you can really quickly chase this down a very, very, very dark hole. So how do you push back against all of that while also maintaining the fact that rules are important? The traditions and norms that guide our political life, I think it's a massive challenge. And I'm not sure that we've that anyone actually has worked out what the right answer to this is yet, how you call out these people. But I think digging into what their incentives are and understanding how they're playing the various games of rhetoric, etc., which obviously, I mean, is a lot of what we've been trying to do on this on this podcast. Right now, there is no playbook of how you deal with these people. These people are speaking to fear. And what do you give people when they're scared? You give them hope. Giving people positive purpose to confront these dark times is part of what we're going to be working on doing too. And there has to be a way of providing that. In this segment, we're going to stay with the theme of migration and focus on a far-right activist called Lauren Southern. Southern is a Canadian, a Canadian who apparently fell short of causes in her own famously tolerant country and decided to defend Europe. Last summer, she ended up on a small boat on the Mediterranean Sea with members of Generation Identity, a white extremist group. Their goal was to protest against the Aquarius, a rescue boat that picks up refugees and migrants to save them from possible drowning. Distressed her protest wouldn't get good enough YouTube footage, Southern even ends up firing an emergency flare. No more! No more! Illegal immigration! No more! No more! Southern explains that incident and her broader motives on her YouTube channel, which has nearly 650,000 subscribers. We're going to listen to one of Southern's recent videos with Karen Metz, who's a senior advocacy advisor with Save the Children, a humanitarian group that's also been part of the effort to rescue migrants. Karen will push sound buttons I provided, allowing her to halt the video so she can make comments based on her real-life experience with migrants. Karen, you've also worked in Flemish politics, and part of your daily business at the moment is pushing back against some of the migration policies coming out of the Belgian government and others. Is that right? Well, I guess I'm doing this also in a private capacity, trying to unravel some of the myths that are circulating. Okay. I will start this off a little bit into this July uh, 2018 video. Uh, For those of you who don't know what I mean by my shenanigans in the Mediterranean, to give you a quick rundown of what happened, back in the summer of 2017, a group called Generation Identity 
held a campaign to protest NGO boats colluding with traffickers and sneaking illegal immigrants into Sicily and, I guess, all over Europe. I went with them. Okay. <laughs> yes, this makes me scream. She says, colluding with traffickers and sneaking illegal immigrants into Sicily. Now, I just want to say that this is not what search and rescue ships generally do. Many of these ships that are run by non-governmental organizations work at the request of and in cooperation with the Italian Coast Guard. So we often just get a signal from the Maritime Rescue and Coordination Center that gets signals of boats that are in distress. So they have an, they give an emergency call or something. And then they request, so it's, it's the authorities that request the nearest ship to save those that are in distress and bring them to the nearest safe port. Let's continue with Lauren Southern to see what else she's got to say for herself on this, uh, on this video. Against a ship called the Aquarius, which had been trafficking thousands of illegals into the port of Sicily. Now, that doesn't sound so bad. Again, trafficking thousands of illegals into the port of Sicily. This drives me insane. The Aquarius has rescued hundreds of people that were in distress or drowning and brought them legally to the nearest safe port as a law of the sea dictates. Another thing I take issue with, it's, the word illegal, is it, it's a conscious choice to use the word illegal. It's kind of ideological and motivated, but you can also see it reflected at the European level. Because when the council is communicating, the European Council or President Tusk, they use the word illegal. When the commission is communicating, so far, they've used the word irregular. When you say illegal, you kind of say that it's a punishable crime, whereas we don't want to criminalize migrants for trying to access their right to asylum. Let's continue on. These ships had been portrayed in the media as helping and saving drowning refugees. And of course, the media completely neglected the research by both the UN and the EU, which confirmed Generation Identity's position that these were economic illegal migrants from non-refugee nations that were- Wow, the, the boat horn, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I think I'm at, oh, it's the air horn, but I think I'll okay. be using the boat horn in the future. Um, so I think she's referring here to, what was it, EU and UN research saying that all of these migrants are illegal? Now, I get... Once in a while, I get trapped into these Twitter debates where people throw these accusations of me saying, you know, only 3% of those arriving to Europe are refugees. Now, this is extremely difficult to assess because people arrive, then some of them request asylum. You have to process their asylum claims and you cannot really, there are, it's very hard to say immediately or to make that assessment immediately that everybody arriving to Europe is either an economic migrant or a refugee. And we also believe, and the Geneva Conventions also say, that everybody has the right to have their claim individually assessed. So, you know, making the assumption that everybody arriving to Europe is an illegal economic migrant, I think is false. We'll go on. So I suppose it's about time I address... The flare question. When we went to go film the Aquarius protest, it was daytime. The Aquarius ended up being delayed by hours and hours and hours as we were sitting in this little speedboat waiting. And I realized at some point that I was not going to be able to get anything on film without some light. And that would be a huge waste of flights, days of organization, and just the whole thing would be a flop. 
So I decided to grab the handheld flare from inside the boat, which doesn't fire anywhere. It doesn't shoot. It doesn't set things ablaze. It was just for light. Most boats have it in it. And I lit it up when we were sailing past so we could get the shot for YouTube. It's not that interesting of a story. That's literally all that happened. And I've explained it a million times on Twitter and explained it to any person who has cared to listen to my explanation. But it didn't seem like that included any of the left-wing media. Okay, so I think you used the boat horn. This time I used the boat horn. <laughs> I think, firstly, the flare question, she makes it into the central point of her debate, which I think is really odd because it's not about the flare. It's about the fact that there's an identitarian ship there wasting everybody's time and, you know, preventing people to conduct search and rescue operations, getting in the way of the authorities, because I think I looked at the video, it was the Italian Coast Guard that were, you know, shouting things at them. And then... She wants to kind of clarify the flare situation. I'm not an expert, but I do think that you only use a flare when you're in distress, when you need help. So I think maybe the Italian code, she could have also confused actors operating at the sea. There are many explanations, but this is also, that's the thing. It kind of distracts the attention to the key point and to the, the key thing that was happening there. This this kind of narrative that makes it very difficult for us. She's very good at creating these incidents that then provoke the authorities or the police, in this case the Coast Guard, to intervene. And suddenly the protesters are the victims. I even had the Associated Press calling me for the next few weeks asking to confirm whether or not I was shooting drowning migrants. No one does that. I don't want to kill anyone. I just want people to not cross borders illegally. You know, obey the freaking law that every nation in the world applies. It is not that crazy of a position. Anyways, this whole event has stuck with me for a while now, and it has always brought me a lot of controversy. Yes, I just um, added a scream there because there are people... It's the lack of control that really scares people. And this is something that these extremist media channels have contributed to. Because even, I think, I remember my father two years ago sending me images of like hundreds of thousands of angry men storming the borders of Europe. And this has created an image that we can't control our borders anymore. So I think that's a reason why politicians always say we need strong borders, we need strong borders, we need regular migration. And to some extent, I don't disagree with that. It's always better to have regular migration than to have people coming irregularly, crossing borders irregularly. But it's it, it's such a difficult thing because as long, there are so many reasons why people attempt to make that crossing. What you also need to understand is that a lot of people go there and they've never even seen the sea. So this is the first time they see the sea. And it's completely black out there because I've spoken to some of, I've spoken to some children that actually tried to make the crossing and then, you know, went back to Niger. And there's, they can't swim. They've never seen the sea. And then they see this rickety boat that is completely filled. And then they just say, okay. But this last month has been a damn good month for me because it has been a damn good month for vindication. Because that same boat, the Aquarius, that GI held the protest against last year, which I filmed, was just recently denied by the Italian government. Italy's interior minister, Matteo Salvini, blocked the ship from docking at its ports, saying, from today, 
Italy will start to say no to human trafficking and no to the business of illegal immigration. I didn't even stop the boat. GI didn't stop the boat. We didn't touch it. And the Italian government is doing exactly that. And what are you guys going to do? Are you going to call the government enforcing its laws terrorists? Are you going to call them refugee drowners? No, no one in the left-wing mainstream press is going to do that because what they're doing is completely rational and what any nation should be doing with its borders. And it just feels so damn good to think, I don't have to do this crazy stuff anymore because the government has decided to start enforcing its laws. And the vindication train doesn't just... Yes, firstly, um, she presented as a win because, you know, finally our battle, we've won the battle and there was a ship that was denied by the government to disembark. Now, I think if we're looking at the, the EU context and European context, especially over the summer and at that time, what Salvini is trying to do is also trying to make a point to the rest of the European leaders. And he has communicated about this regularly. He says, if we're not sharing responsibility, I will not allow these ships to disembark here. I really don't like his tactics because he's playing a poker game at the expense of people's lives. But I do understand where his point is coming from. Just to back up a bit, Matteo Salvini has upped the ante by refusing migrant boats. Yet at the same time, Italy kind of has this point, which is no one's helping us out. So, I mean, is there any sort of saving grace in Salvini doing this? I, like I said, I do understand this point. I do not want him to make that point at the expense of people's lives. Save the Children has operated a search and rescue ship, so we've seen what the conditions on board are, and if there are certain medical situations, etc. People need access to care. They need to be able to, you know, disembark and, 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 and deal with their trauma and, and have some security. What I see happening is a kind of deliberate mess of agreements, bilateral agreements closed between Italy and some member states, maybe a coalition of the willing that is working together sort of below the radar to take up um, asylum seekers that arrive. But what I don't think we will see is a formalized structural agreement between all EU member states. Um, I think it will be kind of got several policies piled together, like a typical European or even a typical Belgian solution, as you may say. <laughs> which is, which nobody can really make sense of, but still things kind of progress. Karen, thanks. Great to talk to you. You're welcome. Games of Trolls. Lyudmila Kozlovska is another victim of the populists. She's a Ukrainian human rights campaigner married to a Polish political activist. The couple's standoff with the far-right Polish government escalated after her husband criticized the government on Facebook. Then, in September, Warsaw banned her from re-entering the 26 European countries that make up the Schengen area. That's something EU rules actually allow. Kozlowska and I met to discuss how the Polish government has been taking advantage of the Schengen system for political purposes, and how she's managing to get around the ban. But our conversation took an unexpected turn when I mentioned the name George Soros, the billionaire financing resistance to authoritarianism. 
A few years ago, she was in line to have her picture taken with Soros when he was visiting Ukraine. It was a photo that meant a lot to her personally and was possibly forgotten the next moment by Soros. But it turned out to be most valuable in the hands of far-right social media trolls. And this year, it resurfaced in a form of identity theft, where the far-right was passing Ludmilla off as, of all people, Christine Blasey Ford, the California psychology professor who brought allegations of sexual assault against Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump's conservative nominee to the Supreme Court. As you know, Kavanaugh got that Supreme Court gig, but that's not our story here today. Our story is about how creating any association with Soros, who's a survivor of Nazi-occupied Hungary, has become the voguish way for the far right to discredit political opponents and anyone they don't like. When it was Christine Blasey Ford's turn, all the trolls could apparently come up with was Ludmilla, who is, to say the least, an unconvincing lookalike. We'll come back to Lyudmila's conflict with the Polish government in a later episode. But let's listen now to her trolling story, which kind of blew my mind, as you'll hear from my bewildered questions. Actually, it's funny stuff because uh, I have a photo with George Soros. I, I had it since the uh, anniversary of Renaissance Foundation. It's one of the branch of uh, Soros Foundation in Ukraine. And for me, of course, it was a great honor to have this photo. And uh, I was in this line to, to do this photo. Uh, we do cooperate with um, Renaissance Foundation on some small project in Ukraine. But that's all. It's like, I don't know, really small money. I mean, until one, uh, until one, uh, $10,000, something like this. It's even not more, you know. So it's really, really small. And it was during uh, um, 2014, 2013, something like this. Then this photo actually was used by different kind of uh, trolls uh, to attack our organization. So what? Uh, first time this photo was used during a big protest which was organized in Russia when it was about defense of Nadia Savchenko and other political prisoners like Oleksin. So Russian propaganda said that it's Soros paid uh, protest. It was first time in like 2016, uh, actually 2015, uh, very much used by Russian propaganda. Then in 2017, it was used by Polish propaganda uh, or someone I don't know who wanted to present us as a person who actually pay for all of this protest and that we are hand of Soros Foundation or Soros himself. This is completely crazy also, but uh, it, it, it helped to develop hate speech against our organization. And now, just this year, it was used uh, to attack Dr. Ford in the US. For example, this photo was uh, reposted more than 84,000 times, claiming that in photo with Soros, uh, not me, but uh, Dr. Ford. So it's this photo is just like favorite tool of all propaganda, you know. <laughs> so Dr. Ford was with that group that day and she was part of the photo or she has a photo with Soros? No, no. they claim that um, on the photo with Soros, it's Dr. Ford, not me, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can show you if you want. Because you look like Christine Blasey Ford? Can you give me my uh, just uh, backpack? I will show you because I know it sounds crazy. When I saw it, 
Oh my God, this water really has some kind of great history, you know? <laughs> It's unbelievable. <laughs> so Christine Blasey Ford will never have met George Soros. Absolutely. I mean, at least the photo which they present uh, claiming that it's she, it's not she at all. It's me. And this photo, I mean, it has like story, crazy story, because it's used many times everywhere. I just want to show you, because I did screens of a few of them. From uh, this person, it started. But then it has even more. And so that's, that's uh, they say that it's, Christine Blasey yes, Ludmilla. Yes, <laughs> yes Ludmilla exactly. Blasey Ford. Well, there is a strange resemblance that only somebody who really would want to believe that. But you see how many times it's shared and a lot of media actually wrote that it was uh, Blasey, uh, I mean, Dr. Ford, uh, who was together with Soros. It's crazy. It's So what's clearly similar is the color of the hair and the style of the glasses. <laughs> There the glasses. is no glasses. <laughs> and yet in the photograph, you are wearing no glasses. It's a little peculiar because Mr. Soros is the same age as he is today. So the whole thing is quite unbelievable. Yes, it's crazy. Yeah. It's well, welcome to the world of trolling, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's happened actually, uh, so it was first version that we are That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EU Screams, and like us on Facebook. You'll also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening.